<laughs> There's some truth there, right? That's we're laughing, chuckling. Some of you are like, should I laugh at that? Can they say that in church? Uh, we're going to step into this one. Uh, turn with me, if you will. If you have a known journal, page 62. If you don't have one, they're free to those of you who would like one. It's a reading plan that we put together with some places that kind of meet God and write and journal and uh, think through some passages. That, so we're going to talk about some things this week, and then there will be some passages for you to dive into uh, throughout the week. But page 62, if you have one of them, a place to take notes. Uh, here's how I want to introduce this series uh, this morning and kind of introduce this talk where we're going to go over the next half hour. Uh, when I was in second grade, I remember this vividly, and as I tell the story, some of you are going to remember this same experience in your life, and you can probably recount it with some of the vivid detail that I still, for whatever reason, can remember in my mind. Second grade at Lidditch Springs uh, Public Pool, right there. Some of you know the area right behind uh, Warwick High School. And um, second grade, my mom brings me to the pool. I'm in swim, swim lessons, and so I'm kind of learning to swim, but I still, for the most part, doggy paddle, right? Get like, head above water and keep your hands out in front. Just don't sink. That's all I'm telling myself. So I'm there at the pool with all my friends, and I look over. A couple of my friends are going off this thing called the high dive, and I'm standing there looking at it and thinking, not that bad. I mean, that's really not that high. There's water. How bad can water be when you hit it? I mean, I can kind of doggy paddle. We're good. So I say to mom, mom, <coughs> excuse me, can I go off the high dive? She says, well, you sure, honey? You sure that's really what you want to do? I mean, it's kind of high. I'm thinking, mom, come on. I'm a man. I can do this thing, right? So I head on over. She gives me the okay. I get over the waiting line, get to the line, get to those steel kind of half rusty steps, and you work your way up, and you stand up there, and you walk to the end. As you get to the end, it starts to have this bounce to it, and you're like, wow. And then you look down, and for whatever reason, looking down, it looks so much higher from up there and it did down there. And so I began to have this second thought. And right, so what do you do? You kind of turn around, and there all my friends are. And there, you know, I was known as Nagel, Nagel Bagel. I don't know why that. I mean, I don't know if it's just rhymed or if I look like a bagel. I'm not quite sure. But all I say, they're going, come on, Nagel, you got to jump. And I'm thinking, I don't want to jump. I mean, I'm going to kill myself. This is the end of my life as I know it. I'm this dramatic second year, second grader. So I walk to the end, I plug my nose, and I just leap, right, and I hit the water. But then what I didn't realize is when you hit the water, you go in the water, like you're down in. So you start to panic. I'm paddling as fast as I can. I get up to the top. I doggy paddle over the end. I'm acting like, oh, my word, my life just, I came this close to dying, right? And I get out of the water, and I get out of the water, I'm like, I'm the man, Let's do that again, right? You ever been there? I don't know if you're, that's so funny. As I have kids now, I watch them do this thing. And um, so here's, here's, I kind of look at that. I think that's this series. We're going to jump in to the deep end. We're going to climb up on the diving board. And some of you are going, Adam, can we really talk about this in church? Because this really the thing? I don't know. Yes, (laughs) we're going to talk about it. It's scary. There's a lot of pain around this. Some of us do belly flops when we hit the water. Some of us don't quite get ourselves around. And, we, and there's all kinds of pain. But I promise as we jump and jump again, after a while you're like, yeah, this is pretty cool. So I really hope my prayers by the end of this series, after we've jumped in, you're saying, yeah, I'm glad we did this. This really brought me some life. Here's why we're going to talk about it. Then we're going to open up um, to the passage we're going to look at. Um, I've found through my years in the church, I kind of grew up in the church. I'm one of these kids that my grandfather planted the church, was a part of the, the church that, that I grew up going to. That church grew to over 1,000 people, this large influential church in our community. And it had a Christian school attached to it. So I went 
I went to that church, I mean, pretty much every day. I was there for school. I was there on Wednesday night for church. I was there Sunday night for church. I was there Sunday morning for church. Like I lived in this church. But one of the things I've observed about this church is I talk with others of my generation, and I've learned that this is true of a lot of churches, that they were really good at asking and answering questions that no one was really asking. Have you ever experienced it? A lot of times when I come to church, I remember as a junior high kid, we had, man, more, more topics about the end times and when Jesus was coming back and we had posters all over the wall. But all the while we're, we're answering questions that no one's asking, well, we're silent about the struggles that we're all facing. I'm like, yo, yeah, okay, it's nice to know when Jesus is going to come back. Is it, during the, is it pre-rapture? Or, I mean, is there a rapture, not a rapture, pre-trib, post-trib, all this wonderful stuff. But quite frankly, what I really care about as a junior high teenage kid is my friends are doing some things in the back of the bus that seem like they probably shouldn't be doing it, but they're telling me it's pretty cool and I should join in and I should find a girl to do the same thing. And no one's really talking about that. And I find that when the church does begin to talk about it, what they were really doing, no one's really standing up and talking about the real issues. And when they did, what they were generally saying is, hey, you got to boycott Disney. Remember this from the 80s? Boycott Disney because during the Lion King, when Simba hits the ground and his dust cloud comes up, sex is in subliminally written into the cloud. All I was doing was a junior high kid was running and buying the VHS tape trying to rewind where he does and think, oh, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it? Really? So again, they either stand up to call for boycotts or it was talked about in a way of you got to protect yourself against the culture and they would more have spoke in like a, this, this condemning way of everything that's happening. In the meantime, inside of me, I'm thinking, well, why isn't it okay? Why, isn't, why can't I do that? Why is it you're telling me that? And, and I began to wrestle and I, what I found as a young person and I found as I grew up and I, for whatever reason, churches, we struggle with this where we really, we want to hold a standard, but at the same time, more than anything, we want people to say, hey, it's safe to explore, to get to know God, to ask your questions, and to wrestle. This series is an attempt at being that place where we can talk about not just the things that you're not asking, but the things that you're really wrestling with, and the things that are kind of spinning around the back of your mind, and the things that you want to talk about, and things you don't. So this series is an attempt at being that place. Also say this, this series is not just about marriage. If you turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this series, the reason we chose this passage, what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do something we don't always do. We, we like to take breaks and do a series like this. Where we're just going to work through verse by verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 7. We picked 1 Corinthians 7 because 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't just address married people. It addresses single people, and it addresses singleness head on, and it talks about how good singleness is. It talks about divorce. It talks about remarriage. It talks about, you know, can I have sex, and how often should I have sex, and it, it gets into all kinds of stuff. So we're just going to stop, and we're going to work through this one um, verse by verse over the next couple weeks and kind of take it apart and see what kind of God has for us. Before we do that, before we jump into this passage, I want to just give a nod to Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Some of you know I was a church planner. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, the church that we tried to plant, the team and I, man, it failed miserably. Um, the church, well, there's a church that was right across town that was starting at the very same time we started. Uh, Charlotte is kind of known as a city where it had all, during we were there, had all kinds of church plants, and it's also known as a place that killed church plants. There's church plant graveyards all over the place in Charlotte. One of the churches that made it was Elevation Church, Pastor Stephen Furtick. He was there at the same time we were there. 
um, just a little tiny church in the same way we were, but today he's far from a little tiny church. They're one of the most influential churches in uh, North America, and so they have given us permission uh, to use the graphics that you see, the videos that you see, see where they come from. They came from him. I want to just say thank you. Um, for that, uh, the, pat, the series itself is ours. I will say that we, we really um, kind of head in a different direction, but I just want to thank them. Next, I want to say I want to resource you. We aren't going to answer all your questions throughout this series. We're going to leave you probably thinking, why didn't you talk about this? Or could have you said that? Or how about this? Or could you have said more there? So we said, okay, what's, is there a really good resource we could give? So I know a lot of you like to read. Uh, so we put a book in the foyer this morning uh, by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. The reason we picked this book is because it, it doesn't just work through 1 Corinthians 7, but he deals with all the issues that are brought up in 1 Corinthians 7. And he writes his church that he pastored. He's no longer there. He's retired. But the church that he pastored in Manhattan was over 60% single. And so we thought, man, let's find a book that's speaking about marriage through the lens of today's singles and, and really addressing it. So, again, it's for those, it's written to all of you, whether you've been married 40 years or whether you're not quite sure you want to be married or whether you're considering marriage. It's a phenomenal book um, that steps through much of the issues that we're going to be working through over the coming weeks. So that said, there's the intro. You guys ready to jump in? Ready for this one? We're going to get kind of on the edge of the high dive, and we're going to take a leap here. So 1 Corinthians 7, let's start with verse 1. I'm going to read through, and then we're going to come back and just go verse by verse. Verse 1, now regarding the questions you ask in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill the husband's sex, her husband's sexual needs. Verse 4, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. In a simple prayer, God help us as we dive into this passage. Um, here we go. So... When you look at verse 1, you see right out of the gates, there's this guy, I want to introduce you to the writer here. His name is Paul, so I know some of you say, Adam, I know this, but let's make sure we're all on the same page. Paul was a guy, he was an apostle. Apostles were the, the founding fathers of the church. They're the ones that would have seen Jesus' physical, resurrected body and then step in to lay the foundation for what we still have as a church today. Paul, when Jesus was resurrected, was actually a, a, a devout Jewish man. He had his PhD in religion. He was one of the brightest philosophers and theologians of the day. And he made it his passion to destroy and attack anything associated with Jesus. Now, as he's going about this mission to wipe Jesus and all his followers out, he meets Jesus um, on a road to Damascus. He's headed up to this town of Damascus. To, he's actually heading there to take it, to persecute the church and to kill um, anyone associated with Jesus. He meets Jesus. Jesus, is, he's so overwhelmed, his eyes are blinded, so he physically can't see, but his spiritual eyes are opened up. And he realizes, oh my goodness, this Jesus truly is the living God, and he is the Son of God, and I'm, he did resurrect from the dead. He came to pay the penalty for 
are for sin and death. And so he then becomes a Jesus follower. He goes out to the wilderness and spends uh, three years out in the wilderness with Jesus uh, in his resurrected self. And he is discipled there and he comes back into town and he says, okay, and he becomes a church leader. So he makes it his mission to move throughout the known uh, kind of what we would know today as Turkey and Greece and Rome and, and Jerusalem and kind of all that place there around the Mediterranean Sea and plant churches, start churches, and strengthen churches. So the churches, especially the churches that would be non-Jewish in orientation, are looking to Paul as kind of their leader, their pastor. They're the guy that's making it happen. So here this church is at Corinth. They're in Greece, and they've got all kinds of problems. Corinth, is, um, Corinth there's, div- there's divisions all over the place. It kind of comes along, and there's multiple pastors at the church, and half the church says, you know what, that guy, it's kind of like, here's what it would sound like in our context. You know what, we have Chris and we have Adam. Half of you would say, well, you know what, I really don't like Adam because of X, Y, and Z. I really like Chris, and Chris is my pastor. I really consider Chris my pastor. Others of you say, well, you know what, I really don't like Chris because of X, Y, and Z. I like Adam, and I consider Adam my pastor. And so it's, that same thing is happening. They, there's the division. There's like, I like this church leader. No, I like that church leader. There's all this division within church. There's lawsuits happening. They're suing one another. They're not getting along. There's division. More than all of that, there's incredible sexual brokenness within the culture and around the church. And then it kind of seeps itself into the church. So the church says, hey, Paul, we got some questions for you. So they send him a letter with a bunch of questions. So what I find so fascinating, I build all that up to say this. What chapter are we in in this letter? Chapter what? Seven. It's the first time that he answers one of their questions. I'm like, what is this? The first time he gets into it. So they got all these questions. Well, here's what I find happens. Here's what I think Paul's kind of going after. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you ever ask your spouse, say, honey, can we go out to eat uh, tonight? And they come back with you and they're like, wow, and you're looking for a simple yes and no. It's a simple question. Can we go out to eat or can we order pizza? And they come back, well... You know, just yesterday, um, man, it was a beautiful day. The sun was up and the, the sky was blue. Man, the leaves were amazing. You know, I sat down. I really wanted to be outside, but I really sat down. I did our budget. And I was doing our budget, and they're just expanding with all this information. And 15 minutes in, you finally say, hey, like, can you give me a simple answer, right? But what they're doing a lot of times when you talk to the person that's expanding, what are they doing? They're trying to get it maybe, well, I don't know if we can really go out because that's a simple question, but there's all these underlying things I see that I'd like to talk about. I don't know how to get into, so we're going to get into them, kind of, kind of work around. I think Paul's kind of doing that same thing. I think oftentimes we ask questions, but standing behind the questions are issues that need to be addressed first. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, this is one thing that Paul addresses. He says, listen, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. So there's people in your culture that aren't even a part of your church that are doing things that you're doing things that they don't even do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin. Some translations say having sex with, the translation you go with. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmom. And if you go on and read this, the thing that's crazy, when you read chapter 5 and it says the crazy thing is you guys are proud. You're like, yeah, let's live and let live. Look how loving we are. We've embraced this guy. And we're like, yeah, way to go, dude. I mean, that's, so he's like, listen, there's a problem here. So before Paul answers his questions, he's talking about some of these underlying issues. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 6, which flows right into 1 Corinthians 7. It's all about, man, sex is so much more than the physical act. 
It is so much more than a physical act. It's about this union, this joining, this connection, this, this intimacy. He says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? You say you're believers in Jesus. He lives in you. You live in him. Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, which is one with Jesus, this is where you have, some of you are familiar, the, the verse that talks about um, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus living in you, should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? I mean, he's saying, you guys don't get sex. He goes on in chapter 6, and he says, listen, the sexual sins carry consequences that no other sin carries. Now, okay, guys, let's answer your questions. So I think sometimes before God gives answers to the questions, he wants to bring healing to the issues. I'd encourage some of you. We're going to jump into some stuff here this morning. I think maybe some of you aren't quite ready for it. I'd encourage maybe you go back this week and just spend some time in chapter 6. Meditate on it, kick it around, ask, man, I got all these questions about how often should I be doing it with my wife or my husband or can I or can I? And maybe sometimes the best thing to do is just go back and find some healing in chapter 6. Now we're setting it up. Here comes the question. So they, what's the question they ask? Look at verse 1. Now regarding the question you ask in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. So what question did they ask? Some of your translations read in verse 1, yes, it is good to have a celibate life, to be single. Some of your translations reads, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So I believe what he's at, what the question that they were asked, that they're asking, is the same question people ask the church today. People in our culture look in at the church today and think, you guys are a bunch of prudes. I mean, wake up to the enlightenment. I mean, look, come on, guys. This is, this is the 21st century. We don't live 2,000. Have you guys ever heard this or engaged this thinking in our culture? They're thinking, why do you got these standards around sex? I mean, come on, let's, let's wake up and be alive to the way. And so I think what they're writing is the same exact questions. Hey, really? Can we not have sex? I mean, is, is it really? So Paul is writing back. Is, Let me answer your question. yes. Yes, it is really good to stay single. Yes, it is really good not to have sexual relations. I want to pause right here, and we're going to hit this and hit it hard all series long. Being single and celibate, meaning with abstaining from sex, is a phenomenal gift. Till we get done with this series, I hope those of you that are part of this church family that find yourself in singleness are celebrating that. And I hope you as a... you. I feel like I'm a part of a church that celebrates that. I hear so often single people say to me, I hate coming to church because it's always about kids and marriage and husbands and wives, and I'm single, and I'm really tired of hearing about it. One of the things we want to say as a church, singleness is phenomenal. However, look at verse 2. But it's hard. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own wife. Husband. So we'd say this, this is going to be all throughout this series. Each season, whether you're single or whether you're married, has its strengths and has its struggles, has its upsides and has its downsides. Now, verse 2. I'll get asked at times this question. Adam, does the church, does the Bible, does God, does, does the Bible really ever say define marriage? 
and sex to be within the confines of marriage. It doesn't really ever define marriage as a man and a woman. I mean, what's wrong with a man and a man and a woman and a woman? And why isn't, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a multi-layered question. It's a, it's a question I get, man, it's, it's prevalent in our culture. Um, we've got, my son was in the bathroom at Garden Spot recently, and, and a young person comes walking in that looks like a female, but she is a female, but she's working through a gender change, and how does the school handle this, and what do we do as believers, and all this stuff's flying around us, and, and so what do we do? How do we stand up as a church, and what does the Bible really say, and all these questions kind of spin, and Here's the verse I often point people to. This is as clear as you're going to get in the scriptures that defines what marriage is and how sex is to work. Verse 2, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should what? Have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So this is the closest we get to marriage being defined in a monogamous relationship of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. Look at this. There's something that jumps out at me. Verse 2, the very start of it. But because there is so much sexual what? What's the word that's used? Immorality. Now, when I look about this, people say, well, Adam, who are you to set the standard in morality? Is there really a standard? Can't we live and let live? And you look at this and process this, and I'd say this. Listen, if there's sexual immorality, what does it mean? And people say, I've been around people who have said to me, Adam, the Bible really doesn't talk about sexual morality in the way that you guys talk about it. I say, well, here's one of the verses. I think it does. And it says if there's sexual immorality, it also means there's sexual morality. And so then people say, well, well, well who are you to set the standard? Is there really a standard? And here's the thing I, here's the thing I love to say. Maybe you've wrestled with this or have a friend that wrestles with this. I love it with grace. Look at him in the eyes and say, you know what I know? You know. And if you don't know it, your friend knows it, that there is a standard. You know why I know? In this room right now, there are a number of you who are deeply wounded sexually. Deeply wounded. You've been raped. You've been handled inappropriately by a father or an uncle or an aunt or an older sister, an older brother, and you carry scar and pain that you don't know how to put words to, but it is a part of you, and it is a deep pain, and it is a trauma almost. And I say, you know what? Right there it is. Someone crossed a line. So the question then becomes, isn't, isn't whether there is morality or immorality, the question then becomes, well, who sets the standard? And our culture today, what I see over and over is, okay, okay, Adam, I'll give you that there's a standard. There's a certain line, even, even in prison, I hear a lot of times stories of those that are in prison that are in prison for pedophilia or child porn are often horribly treated in prison because they crossed the line. And I'll say, listen, okay, so there's a line, but this tension is, in our culture, we hate when someone tells us where the line is. We want to define the line. You can't tell me what it is. I'm going to define it for myself. That's where our culture's at. Now, here's the thing I want to say. To, I want to speak to this with grace and I want to help us understand. Here's why we're going to, I think it's so important to step in and talk about this. There is a standard. There is a standard. If you don't have a husband, you don't get to have sex. If you don't have a wife... You don't get to have sex. If she's your girlfriend, she's not your what? Wife. If he's your boyfriend, he's not your husband. I would say if he's your fiance or she's your fiance, you're still not husband and wife. Now, God does not impose these standards to make life miserable. 
when you go against God's standard, you break the standard. Here's the deal. You don't break the standard. The standard in turn breaks you. I've been down this road. I had someone, I had a good friend say to me, Adam, um, sex before marriage always messes up sex after marriage. It does. I've lived it. There's a brokenness. It's amazing to me when you look at the depression of young girls who are sexually active, it is off the charts. And you saw, why can't someone just stand up and say, hey, here's why. You're hurting yourself. When, when you study and talk and look at the statistics, it is, why can't someone just finally stand up and say, listen, God has a standard. And when you break it, you're breaking yourself you aren't just breaking a law. Now, here's the way I've talked about this in the past. I think here's the way it makes it most sense. Bear with me if you've heard this in the past. I'm sorry. There's other of you in this room that haven't. Let's say I step in and I say, okay, there's another law in this world. It's called gravity. It's not the rule of gravity. It's the what of gravity? Law of gravity, right? There's this guy named Sir Isaac Newton, right? And so let's say we're studying Sir Isaac Newton in school, and I sit back and I scratch my head and I say, you know what? Sir Isaac Newton is a prude. He needs to get up with the 21st century. Yeah, an apple fell and he observed it, but you know what? We've got jetpacks today. We've got all kinds of, we, we have science today that I can tell you Sir Isaac Newton needs to get up with the times. Screw the law of gravity. So I go out and I go out with my kids and we go hiking up at Pumping Station Road north of Lidditz and west of Ephrata. And I get out there and I think, okay, kids, I got my Air Jordans on. I think I can fly. I mean, they're down there. I'm thinking, guys, here we go. I don't like Sir Isaac Newton. I don't agree with Sir Isaac Newton. I think Sir Isaac Newton is a prude. I'm going to fly. My kids are down there, this big rock formation. Dad, Dad, please don't do it. You're old, number one. You can barely jump, number two. I mean, you are stuck on the ground. Please don't do it, Dad. And I think, no. And I run and I jump. What happens? I'm done. Now, I violated a law. But what happened to me? I broke. I think that's the, the, please see this. Don't hear this coming from a place of condemnation. Paul's not writing to say, you guys need to get it straight. He's saying, no, guys, listen. There's so much brokenness here. See and understand there's sexual immorality. Please step in and do this well. Now, I'd love to keep going there. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 and verse 4 are, are filled with, oh boy, here we go. Um, some of you are going, wow, have you ever had the question, how many times should we be having sex? Here it comes. They're going to get it right in here. Some of you are going, hey, my wife hasn't been with me in like four weeks. Is that good? Um, some of you are going, my husband seems to like have a problem, and he always like, is that good? Well, here we go. Verse 3, the husband, so within marriage, let me say this. <laughs> I remember I was coaching football as a single guy. I wasn't yet a real follower of Jesus. And, I, and all the coaches around me were like 50-year-old dudes. And these 50-year-old dudes, are all, all I ever heard them talk about is every time a mom would come to pick up their boy. So this is, this, I'm coaching junior high football. And so these moms are probably in their late 20s, early 30s. These 50-year-old men are like, oh, man, look at her, isn't she? I'm like, dude, you're married. And they're like, and I'm like, I'm not even a follower of Jesus. That's messed up. I mean, that's your, your coat. What are you doing? And they, these guys would be like, yeah, but I haven't had any from my wife. And like, and they went on this whole thing. I'm like, dude, that's what you're going to learn one day. Yeah, see, you're going to learn that when you're an old married guy, you just don't have sex anymore. I'm like, that's kind of what I understood. Paul's going to step into this place and say, listen. So some of you say, here I share, let's say, some of you say, well, Adam, okay, so there's a husband and a wife, we need to get married. But you know what? The married people I know don't do it anymore. 
So is that really an answer? Well, here Paul's going to step into that place. It's difficult. It's hard. It's messy. It's what do we do with this? But we're all asking the questions. Verse 3. The husband should fulfill his wife's what? What's it say? Men, can I tell you something? Your wife has sexual needs. I don't know why. For the life of me, I don't know why. We treat sex like it's a man issue and not a female issue. Your wife has needs. Let me flip it. Here it goes. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Verse 4, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Now, some of you are going, husbands are going, yes, that is going on the bathroom mirror, and we're going to memorize that. That is going to be the verse of the month. Honey, we are going to memorize Scripture. Right? But look at the rest of it. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Now, one of the things I love about this is this is written in a day. This, I think this validates scripture so beautifully. This is written in a day when men were very misogynistic. It was a male-driven culture. It was kind of men over top of women, lording it over. And they step in and they, Paul writes, no, 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 listen, guys. It's not you go home and control how it happens. Your wife also has say in this whole thing. Now, let me really push on this one a bit. I want to use the NIV to show you this verse here. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 3 says this the way in the NIV. The husband should fulfill his marital what? Some people go, well, that's romantic. In other words, get the job done, boys. Right? It's like, yeah, wow, way to go. I mean, I'm going to take my wife flowers because it's what a husband does. I mean, that's, I got to do what a husband does. I got to do my job and get my job done. We hate, today, young people today hate this. The minute love begins to smell of duty, responsibility, have to, they're like, no, thank you. Young people today, more than any generation, they're like, no. There is a, when they sniff out duty, they're like, uh-uh, this ain't real love. This is not real love. They dream of fulfilling purpose and happiness and desire and fireworks and all this stuff. And But when you say you got a job to do, go get it done, I mean, no. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Sex is not about you. This is my number one. When I, when I was a youth pastor, and I would talk to young people who were single because they're teenagers, and I'd encourage them not to be having sex. One of the things, my number one thing is say, guys, listen, the scripture says when sex is so much more than a physical act. And when a young person is out there to have sex, like I was when I was a teenager, this is an area where I failed and failed miserably. Do you know why I was never thinking about the girl? What was I always thinking about? I wasn't thinking, quite honestly. It was this passion and desire that starts to rage inside of me, and I got to fulfill it. And the scripture comes along and says, that's not sex. Sex is fulfilling their needs. Sex is not about you. It's about them. It's about this act of bringing union and intimacy and connection and community and this beautiful picture of what our relationship with God should look like. It's not just about you. I'd say it this way. Desire can light a fire, but only duty can keep it burning. If you think you're going to have a marriage where it's all romance, <laughs> you need to wake up. It ain't coming. I'll show you a verse in a little bit that really, I think, accentuates that. You know, people go into marriage for desire, and they don't know a thing about duty. Tim Keller, in the book I mentioned, says, I love this quote. He says it this way. He has a whole section on this, and I encourage you to pick the book up just for this chapter alone. If you never have sex unless there is great mutual passion, there will be fewer and fewer times of mutual passion. It takes work. 
I think some of us has fallen in love with a picture of marriage and we forgot what the real thing is. Where I'm afraid too many people want a relationship without giving of ourselves in relationship. When I read this verse, I'll say it this way. One of the greatest sexual pleasures should be the pleasure of your spouse receiving pleasure. That's what sex is about. Sex is a way to know God and build community. And if we use it for that, rather than just my personal satisfaction, I believe you're actually, in the end, going to find greater fulfillment. Now, some of you are really uncomfortable right now and going, oh, my goodness, Adam, please move on. Well, let's look at verse 5. Let's dive a little deeper. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Now, this one I want to say, I hear this question all the time. This is one of the number one Googled questions on sex. How many times is it, what's normal in a marriage? What is normal for the frequency? Well, great question. Paul's going to answer it. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We're going to talk about this lack of self-control next week. This pops up over and over and over. So we're going, to, we're going to really kick into that one with full force next week. So look what he says. I love this. I love this. I love this. God not only allows sex within marriage, what? He commands it. People say the church, you guys are a bunch of prudes. No, we're not. Read verse 5. God himself says, go do it. And do it often. And do it regularly. And we're going to get into all the reasons next week why this is really important. But some of you are sitting here going, there's all kinds of tension right now. Well, no, wait a minute. If I go and put that one in the mirror, I'm going to pay dearly, right? Some of you want to make that one the verse of the month that you're going to memorize as a family, right? So here's the deal. Let me talk about this in a very real and honest way where there's a place for the pain to kind of kick around. First thing I'd say, I run across too many marriages where they're withholding to pay to cause someone to pay. I'm ticked at you. You've hurt me. So I'm going to hold it from you. I'm not sure the scriptures get into that much. There's a problem there. Let me say this one too. Some of you, I've had, um, it's usually men who are coming to this more than women. I'm sure women will come to the same thing. But uh, they'll come to me at times and say, Adam, my wife's not having sex with me. What do I do? Here's my response. We'll open to this passage, and I'll say, well, here's two things I'll tell you. First of all, do you understand that she's paying a price as well? Well, no, I never thought about it. She has needs. So if there isn't an opportunity for her to be having sex, you guys haven't had sex for how long? Uh, It's been like six weeks. Well, then she's been in pain for six weeks too. We forget that, guys and girls in the room too. We just get selfish. Well, no, she needs to take care of my needs. Well, you haven't taken care of hers for six weeks either. So second thing I'll say is this. I'll say, okay, when should you part ways sexually? What does the scripture say? When should it happen? What's the passage say? For a time of prayer and devotion. Let's spend a time of fasting, if you will. Now, that's a big deal. And I'd say this, okay, so you haven't, here's what I say to the husband that says to me, I haven't had sex in like six weeks. Okay, you haven't chosen this separation, but use it for the reason parting ways is designed to be used. Spend this time in full devotion to your creator, to your savior. Spend this time in prayer. Every time you have an urge, just get down on your knees and pray and talk to God about him being your all in all, period. 
And I would venture a guess that there's going to be some work that starts to happen in your heart that opens some doors for you to be able to move towards your spouse in a loving and kind way that you begin to realize how selfish you have been for the last six weeks. So again, it should be regular. It should be often unless you're saying, hey, um, we're going to take a time to fast. Now, verse 6 comes along. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Boy, I'd love to dive into this one more. This verse has been used to undermine the authority of Scripture because they're saying, well, if all Scripture is inspired by God, why does Paul say this? Because is this not really inspired? So why is it Scripture? I would say, man, I'd love to get into that discussion. If that's where you're at and you're wrestling with that, see me afterwards. Man, I'd love to sit down with you and unpack that. What he's really saying here is, hey, when I talk about having sex, except for those times of prayer and devotion, I'm saying what I'm really saying is it's a concession, not a command. So in other words, you can, in other words, you can still have sex and be very close to God is what he's, I think what he's really driving at there. Then verse 7, this is where the plane comes for landing and warm us up for next week. But I wish everyone were single just as I am. I love this. I wish everyone was single just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. I wish everyone was single just as I am. I smile when I hear this, right? I smile because I hear Paul kind of saying like, man, it would be great if you were awesome like me. That's what I kind of hear him saying. If you were really cool like me and you were content in Christ like I am, Man, it'd be great if you were like me, but you know, you, you lesser people, let me tell you. I, I kind of joke with that, but it's kind of what I read. Paul's saying, listen, I wish you were single like me and content in Christ. I think it's really going after. And we're going to talk about this more next week because this gets us ready for next week. I believe Paul was married and he was a widow, widower. <laughs> That's going to open us up for next week. But what he's really going after, look at when he gets to the end. Look when he gets to the end. Yet each person has a special gift from God. I would say this, if you are single, it is a really good gift. If you're here in this room this morning and say, Adam, I'm single, but I really want to be married. Your singleness is an incredible gift. And, and we'll get into a minute how much you need this gift. If you're married, it's a really good gift. Now, when Paul talks about, I wish you were single like me, here's what he's going after. Later in the chapter, he says this, but if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have, what's it say? There's an encouraging marriage verse for you. Now, we joke about this, but it's reality. I think we forget this. If you're in this room and you are married, you have problems, and you're going to have a lot of them. It's crazy. You say, why is it a gift? Why is it a gift if I have problems? I'll read this. And I am trying to spare you those problems. Well, here's why it's a gift. The word gift is the word charisma. Charismatic, you ever hear that? Or he's so charismatic or he has charisma. It's charisma, which in the Greek means it's a gift of grace or a grace gift. So what he's saying is he ends this whole section. He's basically coming in and saying, listen, if you're single, you need grace to be single. It is a gift of grace. If you are married, if you are married, it is a gift of grace. We're going to push into this all series long, but I think it's so important right out of the gates to get past the packaging of being single or being married to see the gift of God's sufficient grace. Many of us miss this because we're so focused on what we want. I want to be married so bad. Why won't anyone marry me? Well, or someone say, man, I don't want to be married anymore. I'm tired of him. I'm tired of her. And we miss the grace. The real issue in marriage, the real issues in marriage, 
is not praying and asking God to fix all the problems or fix your spouse. The real gift of marriage is God, give me the grace to trust you and to be faithful. Paul writes, the same guy, writes a second letter to the same church. And he says to the end of the letter, he says, I have this thorn in the flesh, he calls it. I'm broken, I'm weak, I'm hurting. I so badly want to be healed. I've prayed three times. We've had a healing service three times, and all three times, nothing. And then I hear God say this to me. My grace is all that you need. My power works best in weakness. So now Paul says, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. This is where the gospel of Jesus really shines. You know why Jesus came to this world to die, to hang on a cross that we have right here that's empty right now? You know why he came? Because we were broken and weak people. And what I find in our culture today, especially when we get into some of the sexual stuff, we say, oh, no, no, I can fix it, Adam. I can fix it. You know what? I'm just going to work really hard. And it's going to get better. I'm here to tell you, you can't fix it. Your brokenness is broken. Your weakness is weakness. And you are weak and you hurt and you ache for a reason. It's because sin has entered our world. And our world is jacked up all around us, and it's inside of you. And I love when Paul writes, and he says, my grace is sufficient. He's writing about a physical pain. Physical ailment is here because of sin that entered the world. Or whether he's writing about emotional or, or, or spiritual pain, it's here because we're broken. And Jesus is a solution. And Jesus says, I've come, and I've offered you a gift, and this gift is grace. And you need my grace, or you're never going to make it. So whether you're single or whether you're married, you need my grace. And allow the difficulty and the tension to continue to drive you and push you in to grace. So we're going to go to prayer. And as we go to prayer, some of you are here this morning. I think you are in need of grace. There's no easy solutions throughout this series. But the one solution we're going to give all series long is the inexhaustible supply of God's grace. Some of you in this room, you are battling strong internal urges and desires that you think are going to destroy you. You can't say no. You might even call yourself a sex addict or you may be drawn to, this, uh, to the same sex. You just, there's this burning inside of you. I'd say, listen, God's grace is for you. He's offered you a gift. Some of you here this morning and you say, man, and it's probably more of them in first service, but man, high school. I'm in high school and it's all around me. Sex is everywhere and I want so badly to fit in, and, but yet I'm, I know that I shouldn't and I just, you need God's grace. Some of you here and your husband has a, to call it a porn problem, maybe an understatement. He is extremely addicted. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. You ache. You feel rejected. I'd say, man, God's grace. Some of you, your wife never wants to have sex. She always has a headache. Some of you have a legitimate medical condition that keeps you from being together. Some of you have crossed 35 and you're still single. Some of you, your husband has ED. Some of you, you are so alone in marriage. Some of you, you're so alone as a single person. Some of you, you never, ever, ever fight. You call yourselves good friends, but you lack passion in your marriage. Some of you say, well, she cheated on me. He cheated on me. Can I leave him? Can I leave her? We're going to get into all this stuff, and I'd say, but all in all, in midst of all of it, God is saying, listen, my grace is sufficient. In other words, I am enough. 
Even if I fixed all of those problems, I am enough. Do you trust me in that? Can you walk with me in that? Some of you are saying, well, is God's standard really one man and one woman? I mean, why? And I didn't hear, God's grace is enough. Step in and wrestle in the presence of your creator. Some of you, your spouse wants you to do things in the bedroom that you're uncomfortable with. You don't know what to do with that. Some of you have hurt each other so many times, and each time you're together, you only seem to make it worse. Some of you, you have a good marriage, you have great kids, but you seem like you're missing something. God's grace is enough. God, thank you so much. God, I just want to start by saying thank you for your grace. Father, thank you for Jesus. God, I think this series, what it pushes on us more than anything is, are you enough? God, I believe with all my heart that you are, but man, so many times I don't live it. <laughs> so many times I'm, I'm grabbing at other stuff and trying to fix and make life better and do away with pain. And all the while you're saying, Adam, Adam, sit down with me. Get to know me. I've given you a gift. That's my grace. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, I pray for those in this room right now. There are some here that ache so bad. They've been hurt sexually. God, would you heal them? Would you do such a mighty work in their heart? Would you bring them peace that has eluded them for years? Others are here and they've made so many mistakes sexually. God, this is a journey I've walked and Man, I've lived with regret and shame and brokenness. And as I step into a beautiful marriage that I have, and I still, it creeps back in at times. And God, would you heal those of us in this room that have that dark past? God, those that are in this room that are single and so badly want to be married, God, would they be able to sit down with your sufficient grace? Those of you that are, those that are in this room and are married and so badly want to be single, God, would they be able to sit down in your sufficient grace? God, all the points in between and the pain and the good times and the bad times, God, throughout this series, may we see and know and experience the sufficiency of you being enough, of your grace, of Jesus stepping in and saying, this is why I came, because it's broken and there's sin and there's heartache. I've come to put the pieces back together. I've come to unscramble the eggs, if you will. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. God, may we see you and run after you and give our hearts and our lives to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.